and a, I felt like it was a little simpler than what we have been doing the last few weeks, uh, a little more um, just almost like kind of laying out the, the facts. This is what you need to know about things, right? And yet he opens it with a really powerful uh, command. So I, I would call it a command at the beginning, does he not? What did you see at the beginning of chapter 44 that to you really, um, if you were going to sleep sort of in the middle of these Ezekiel chapters that we're in right now, would you say that there was something stated here in the opening of chapter 44 that would, if you're paying attention, that you would be going, ah, I should be paying attention, right? Did you see it? What is the command in here that God brings our attention to? Did you see anything in there where God is literally saying, look, pay attention? Yes. Okay, yes. When you have, as a parent, have you ever said to your, your children, now listen to me? Here we have a statement. God is saying, mark well. Did anybody do a word study on mark well? To say, what, well, what is he saying there, mark well? What does that mean? Let's, let's start our day off with that because he is saying something significant here. He's making a point. So in chapter 44, verse 5, he says, Mark well. He says it twice, right? Now, in some regards, you could say Mark well just means, oh, you know, mark out the dimension and whatever. But that's not what he says because he then elaborates on it, does he not? So what does he say to Mark well? Let's talk about the things he wants us to Mark well. Give me the things that he says to Mark well. Okay, all the statutes of the house of God or house of the Lord. All right, that's the first one. What else? Okay, the entrances or the entrance, the entrance of the house. Okay, and? Not only the entrance is what? All the exits of what? The sanctuary. And there was one more. Besides all the statutes, also what? All its what? Laws. Okay. So laws, statutes, entrances, exits. And he's saying, I want you to mark these well. What, what else did he say about those? How, and in, when he's saying mark well, did you get any kind of a definition about what he meant by mark well? What's the very next thing he says? See with your eyes and hear with your ears. In other words, pay attention, right? So I, did anybody look that word up, mark well, by chance? No? Okay, it's number 3820, and it's the word L-E-B-L-A-B-E. Leb, lab. I can't pronounce that very well. It says, it means this, consider. It is concerning the inner man, the mind and the heart. 
And it also ties in determination of will. That's pretty interesting. So it's saying not just mark well as in take a look at it and note it and pay attention, but he's saying, look, with your mind, with your heart, with your will, consider, mark well, these things that I'm going to show you about the house of the Lord, its statues, the entrance of the house, and the exits of the... Of, why would it be important for me to consider in my heart and, and do something with, concerning my will, right, it, when it talks about the entrances and the exits? What is the implication there? Mm-hmm. Okay, so when it, in regards to my will concerning these facts, what is the implication? What is he implying he wants me to do with my will? Put my own aside and do what's concerning him and what he's telling me. Submit to it, right? Submit to what I'm telling you about these things. Um would you say that a lot of people, when they look at a book like Ezekiel, and particularly these facts concerning the end time in the temple, that they're really compliant to it, that they're really open to it? Or do you think they're resistant? They're like, uh, I don't think I like what I'm seeing here. Why, why do people not like what they're seeing here in Ezekiel uh, 40 to 48? Have you, have you had conversations with people that are going, I don't really like this? Or have you yourselves even argued with yourself about, I don't really like what I'm seeing here? Why? What is your problem? Yeah, it's the law. It's the law. And we're like, wait a minute. I thought we were released from the law, right? And if when we did on day five homework looking at Hebrews, what did we see about our relationship to the law in our covenant with Jesus. It's done with him once for all. And therefore we're released from the law. The law has no longer has power over us, right? Because we're now under by grace in this faith with Jesus Christ. And therefore we're looking at this thing that God has told us, excuse me, in a timeline that, um, this temple is going to be put in place. There is going to be a sacrificial system reestablished on the land. And, and, and immediately our little internal something gets all kicked up and we start to go bristling against it a little bit. It's like, wait a minute. This can't mean that this must be somewhere else in history. This has to be before the cross, you know. Everybody wants to take that information from those last few chapters of 40 and move them backward on, on a timeline, right? So you tell me why they can't do that. What would, your, what would your response be to them now at this point in what we've, re, we've studied in Ezekiel? Where do we place this and why? Okay, I'm just going to kind of make a list here, okay? Okay, justifying, justify the temple at end. Okay, number one, never seen it, never seen, we've never seen what about this temple that makes you say it hasn't happened? Okay, the glory of Lord 
returned to a temple, right? We've never seen that. We know a temple was built during the days of the Medo-Persian Empire. They did rebuild the temple, but there's no record of the, re- the returning of the glory of the Lord with the exception that Jesus himself entered into it at one point. When we go into the New Testament, we do see a record where we see, is it, was his name Simeon? The pre- he was a priest, and he held, and he, he said his eyes had beheld the glory of the Lord and that thou, now he could pass off pass into peace or whatever. Um, so we know in that regards, the glory of the Lord did enter that temple. But beyond that, Herod's temple from the days of the Medo-Persian empire, all the way until 70 AD when it was destroyed, that presence of the glory of God, as it had been in the days previous to this, the first temple had not ever come back. So one of the points of, of, validating that this is a temple that's yet future is the fact that we've never seen the glory of God returned to the temple. So that's a, that's a proofing. There's never been that temple in Okay. Okay. And what, why do you say that? Ah, uh, there we go. This temple with dimensions In, ever in history, right? It's it's significantly larger, correct? It, um, locations of things are in different places. Now, you'd have to do a real detail, point-by-point point comparison, which we have not done. Praise the Lord. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I say that because already my hair is pulled out from just trying to figure this much out. But if you really wanted to get methodical on this, you could take the first temple, get all of its dimensions, lay them out, and then do a chart side by side and make comparisons. The size of the altars, placements of doors, how wide corridors are. Um, even the even talking about the allotments of the land, right? How big the overall complex is. All those things have are, are different from the first temple. Yes. Okay, the seal, yes, that's a good point. I hadn't thought of that because it was sealed at what point in history? Somewhere, well, I think it was during the, it had to do with the Ottomans or the, it was uh, the, the Islamic leaders closed it down, right? I can't remember the guy's name. Closed it off. Right. Very interesting. So the gate issue, okay, the eastern gate. The pr- okay, that's... Um, have there ever been in previous history princes in the temple? Yeah, there have. You know, the different kings through the ages. So that one would be a little tougher if you're wanting to give an apologetic reason why this is an end-time temple and not a pres- uh, not something that's already happened in history, we know Herod. But the problem is with Herod is Ezekiel gives this, ki- this prince a name, doesn't he? Who does he call this prince? David. Um, and so did, was David ever in the second temple? 
He didn't even build the first one. His son built the first one, right? So David is another point that we can put on here. Just put David's presence as prince over Israel. Right? And that prince is speaking of kingship. Right? Yes. Yay! Good job. All right, the the uh, no veil. Or it's now a door. In this particular imagery, right? Good one. I like that. Priesthoods are different. Priesthoods, as stated in in, uh, Ezekiel, have never happened. Isn't it pretty cool that we've already listed this many things just kind of without really thinking too hard on this? These are really overtly obvious things. And I can tell you this, uh, Carol and I were talking about you know, the, the difficulties that seems like everybody has with Ezekiel's temple vision. The Christians have difficulty with it because we're going, yeah, but why are we sacrificing again if Jesus is already sacrificed? The Jews have problems with it because it's missing many of its primary necessary articles and it's, and it's violating many of their understandings of Levitical law regarding wh- who the priests are, how they go about certain processes, even the directions certain things are laid. I just know that's another issue. The altar itself is fund- it's significantly larger than the original altar. Yes. Well, as we know from Paul, the original law was important to point people to Christ. That's right. So the reinstatement of the law I agree. I agree. I mean, you know, one of the things that it, at the yes, Christ has. So again, in inductive Bible study, you you have to hold fast. Do not violate your known doctrines. You are going to let the context rule for interpretation. Correct. Um, We also have to understand that this is a future event. And I just want to pose a question to you. Knowing that it's a future event... Um, when God has given to us his word on the whole about any subject, does he usually give us full insight and full details in any one uh, writing, like through one author he gives us the whole story? He doesn't generally do it that way, right? Almost, I mean, I can't even think of a subject that God has ever given us the full story in one spot. So what's very interesting to me, though, is, is there anywhere else in Scripture 
that gives us any significant details about the Ezekiel temple that he's speaking of besides Ezekiel. Okay, yes. And what's very interesting to me about that is a lot of people say, oh, well, that's not talking about the end of the age. That's talking about somewhere else in history. That's where the hang-up comes in here, Kathleen, because people want to, instead of taking it as a literal truth, interpret God's word. Historical word is fact, right? Historical records, literal interpretation. Now, obviously, you're going to take your imageries and give them something more realistic. So that you can, like we did with Revelation where we saw the dragon, and then it told us what the, who the dragon was. First, it was a dragon. It was a great red dragon. It had seven heads and, and uh, all these horns, and it had it come up on the land, and it, I mean, it did all these things. And yet then it gave us interpretation. It says, and the dragon is the serpent, the devil you know, the deceiver of old. And so it gave us interpretation. So there's a literalness to it. So symbolically is represented, but there is a literal interpretation on all of these prophetic things given to us, correct? So in the case, however, of the temple, is it imagery or is it a literal temple? How do we know it's a literal temple and it's not imagery and it's not talking about something that's not going to happen. It's very factual. What gives you a clue about its real factual? So many details. Measuring rod. It's this dimension by this dimension. It's made out of this. It has this kind of decor uh, uh, described to you concerning it. Because of all the details, it's a historical record, therefore it's literal. It has details uh, for all its, um, its, its parts, basically right, dimensions and size and height and, and even placement, north, south, east, west, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I think it's very interesting. I didn't, I didn't do any research on it, but I wish I had had time. The part where it says they come, if they come in by the north, they must leave by the south, and if they come in by the south, they must leave by the north. They can only go in one direction. What, what do you, does anybody know? Pardon? Yeah, that's my question. Did you research it? No. <laughs> Lois. <laughs> very good, Martha. That was my thought. My thought was maybe it's just logistics, which is be right up your alley, Lois, and you would probably be at the door going, just keep moving. <laughs> so that's probably your job. <laughs> Obviously, now one of the one of the significant insights that we've been looking at with this is it seems like there is a a real a higher law in all of this that does what it separates something. What is being separated? 
the the holy from the profane, right? This is an overriding. I'm going to put this on here for for letting context rule, right? There's an over there's an overriding theme on this. Holy is kept from the profane. And profane just means common, right? The daily, everyday people stuff. So the holy from the profane, it seems like that's one of the contextual points that we want to keep in mind in what we're looking at, right? Um, what else? This is really, I think, productive conversation this morning. Yeah. ministering to me yeah that's very interesting true um and you know in that storyline there we also saw where one group is is basically um um what do you you call it when you lose your rank you get demoted like they're demoted it isn't like they lose out totally but they get demoted and someone else gets exalted and so that's kind of an, an interesting insight into that too. And the reason for the demotion and the promotion was obedience and, and treating holy that which is holy, right? Showing reverential fear of the Lord. So it also seems like that's another overriding thing is uh, reverence uh, and holiness, respect. For God, for the Lord, in a, in essence, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. You know what's very interesting too is I do think there's a distinction between the old law system and and what is going to take place as far as those who get put into those places of service in the new, what is the distinguishing thing that stands out to you the most about the difference between the people who served in that first temple and the people who served in, who are going to serve in this temple? Who are the people? Who are these Jewish people who are going to go into this temple service? Who are they? What, what have they just gone through historically in a timeline? Right? We have this tribulation. And we know that when they go on to this kingdom that they enter into, who gets to go? Two-thirds are cut off, right? One-third will, will possess the land possess and serve God, correct? And what is it that distinguishes these people? What have they received according to the verses? I think it was like 37, 38, a heart. They receive a new heart and receive God's spirit, 
Now, is that significantly different from those who served in that first temple? Now, would you say among those who served in the first temple, there were probably some who did have the right heart and they really were, you know, reverential to the Lord. And we know that because of just what we looked at this week regarding these two priesthoods, one who who was demoted because of ancestral um, breaches of their of their conduct, right? Um, and they did not have a, a heart for God. They did not follow the Lord. And yet, because of bloodline, they have been placed in those positions to serve. So what are we seeing is the distinguishing difference between that old system then and the new system. The only Who gets to be in the new system serving before the Lord and ministering for the Lord? Only those who have actually entered into real covenant with God, who have a real heart for the Lord. No one else is allowed in that position. So you don't get just born into this. Now, is there, a, is there any kind of a insight on that regarding how we perceive even relationship with God through the demonstration of what we're seeing here in this temple? Do you get into salvation in any other way, even in the new, in the new covenant? Do, do your children get to be Christians just because you are? No, you know, you can want it all you want, but your child has to make their own independent decision for for following God. And if they reject it, then they don't get to be a part of the house of faith just because you are. As much as we wish that were true. If I could make those decisions for my children and my grandchildren, even my friends, boy, would I, right? Yes, and Jesus comes to be what? King of kings, Lord of lords. Yay, hallelujah. So he's going to be Lord of, Lord of lords, King of kings. Jesus is going to be present. Uh, these, these who are the one-third who have come through refined and purified, I'm going to put that on here refined and purified. And you can find a lot of this in Zechariah chapters 12 to 14 if you want to go and look at those again for those of you who are still trying to just kind of build your your knowledge base on, on those points. Zechariah 12, 13, and 14 are hugely insightful for the that in-time activity. When we went back to, um, if we take our minds and go back to even those battles about uh, Gog, God, God bringing Gog up against Israel in that day, and you lay that next to what we see in both Revelation concerning these end-time tribulations and lay it against what Zechariah says about that same time frame, which is in that day, they line up perfectly. There's too many points of common uh, uh, significance that that are profound and they're unique and they're you know one of the things I remember that to me really stood out especially besides all of the other things that I listed the one was this great supper of God which is the birds of the air coming 
to eat. And he calls it in Revelation, the supper of God. And in, and in Ezekiel, he calls it the table of the Lord. And the birds come and feast on the flesh of men. Those, and those two things are in context to a, whole, to a war and all these other events that are happening. And there's too many common points that you can match up that after a while it becomes ridiculous to say it's not the same, right? So to me, those are just like the, uh, those are the objective observations you're able to make if you will look just to see what matches. But it's very time-consuming, but it is really pr- productive. Yeah. At the beginning, everyone. Right, right. And some of those other nations. No, absolutely. You're absolutely right. That is so good to know. We know that concerning the Jews, at the very beginning of this millennial kingdom, the only ones left alive are those who have come into faith, those who have bowed the knee. The rest of them, what has happened to them? They're dead. Zachariah says two-thirds of them are cut off. What are you saying? Smote. You're smote. <laughs> smote through the tribulation era, right? Through those, four, those seven years where God is purging and refining. And, that's, and if you take that now and then drop into Romans chapter 11, where it talks about until the fullness of the Gentiles, okay? So here we are right in here in the in the church age and when the fullness of of gentiles is complete then he's going to start with israel and he knows mhm that's exactly right then that's when things will begin to happen. And for us, what we, here's what we do know. We know this is true. We know this is fact. God is going to do this. We know the church at some point will be raptured out. Um, and so we wait patiently for the Lord to do those things. We prepare as much as we can, and we warn people that a day of judgment is coming. That's what our responsibility is as the church, is to educate ourselves as much as we can so we know as much as we can, so that we can explain it to people when they have questions. Now, you can't throw your pearls before the swine. They aren't going to listen, right? The ones who don't want to know, you're just speaking into the wind, and there's no point in arguing about it. But for those who are interested, those who want to know, then you need to be prepared. And that's what this class is really doing for us, I think. There's a lot of preparation here of preparing our minds to, for us ourselves. For me personally, I've never been through Ezekiel. I almost feel like in a way, doing Ezekiel this first time through has helped me kind of just lay it, lay it out. I've got the big chunky pieces now in order. It's kind of like the first time I did Revelation, I felt that way. Now the next time I go through Ezekiel, I'll be ready to dive into more details and start sorting it all out. So I want to put your hearts to rest. If you're feeling like, well, I st- I'm so confused still on so much. Well, yes, and so am I. But that the point to, you know, any kind of inductive Bible study is it's one thing on another. You just slowly by slowly begin to build your, your understanding. You can't learn it all at one time. So you learn what you can this first time through and feel really accomplished in that. I want you to feel really satisfied 
that what you have learned is you've got a pretty good picture, right? And that then maybe the next time, if there is a next time for you, I'm pretty sure there will be for me, <laughs> when I go through this another time, then I'll have better, a better grip because I'll already kind of know what's ahead. Next week's homework, I think, is going to be very exciting because as we look at these um, possibilities of, you know, our struggle as the church is, well, then why the temple? Why are we going to have these sacrifices, right? So uh, I looked ahead at, at this last night. I just looked ahead at, to see what we're doing in our last week's study. And Kay has done a brilliant thing. And I, w- I honestly wish we had done this like two weeks ago or three weeks ago and just kind of changed the order of things because I think it would have been valuable as we moved for it, forward in it. But that's just my opinion. But we're going to look at the different people groups of the last days. We're going to look at the Jews, you know, what relates to them, what are the promises to them, how do we, because any Jew, now obviously the Jews who go into the land are believers, but then as Craig pointed out, there'll be others born as generations go on, and now they're going to have to come into faith. Do they automatically get to be in this position? No. Do you think that they're going to allow a priest who does not have the Spirit of God in them to serve at the temple of God or to enter in before the presence of the Lord in that temple? What do you think will happen to a person who has no spirit of God and no faith when they enter into to minister before the Lord? The same thing that used to happen when they violated laws in the Old Testament. They would die, right? Uh, like those brothers who gave, um, gave uh, what did they? Yeah, the strange fire before the Lord. Yes, yes. So I just, I just kind of think this is really exciting. So we're going to look at the Jews. The other people group we're going to look at are us as Christians. We're going to look more deeply at what are some points that are doctrines, because we don't want to violate our own doctrines. What are some doctrines about us? And I did put this on the chart last week for you to, to contemplate. You know, what are some doctrinal points that... Um, we know are absolutely true about us in our relationship with God and in relationship to sacrificing, right? We know Jesus, you know, has fulfilled that. We know that, you know, we're not, even in Hebrews it says we're not even to go back to that. I mean, the warning is don't go back to that, which is fulfilled, or you crucify the Lord over and over again. So we know that's a doctrine that we want to hold on to. Uh Uh-huh. No, what did we just say about this? There's too many details, too many measured north, south, east, west, this dimension. So is there a spiritual truth to it? Is that what you're saying? Okay, yes. Right. So, so what you're saying is potentially one of the reasons we may have that end time temple is that it again is a witness. It's like preaching the gospel to the world at that time. Oh, I don't know. But do you think he? Do you, <laughs> so Jesus will have a nice house. <laughs> oh, that's good. Okay. But but you know, my question though would be to you, James, is are you saying there isn't one? Okay, well, it's pretty hard to, to, when you see all of the, so was there ever a temple? 
Okay, and how do you know that? It's history. Okay, so it's happened. So this is future, and we know it hasn't yet happened, so you're not sure if it's actually going to happen. Even though the dimensions are given, the people are named, their roles and their duties are proclaimed. I mean, so all that God has given by his own word at this point, all of these points, and it's not a literal thing. That would be your, your, yeah, that would be the thing that you would need to say, well, does that make sense? Does God do that? Huh? Not only that, but he laid out all the points about Jesus coming, where he would be born, of what lineage he would be, uh, how he would die on a cross. And so those were points that God prophetically gave, which had not happened at that time in history also. And have they already happened? One of the things, okay, this is a perfect leading. Thank you, James. (laughs) We have been working on our, then you will know that I am the Lord list, right? What would you say on the whole in this study you've learned about that phrase that keeps being repeated in this book? Although we've kind of lost it here in these last few chapters. It's not really present. But what would you say on the whole is the point that God says, and then you will know I am the Lord? Well, yeah, it does seem like that is something that's ha- that, that it seems like it, it that he is doing judgment. But what else? Some of those things he says, and then you will know I am the Lord is talking about them being put back on their land, right? Okay, so when he does what he says he will do, then you will know that I am the Lord. And so by having done some of these things in history, and we're still moving forward, some of them are, you're right. Like James just said, well, this temple's not here yet. So it's kind of hard to understand some of these points about this temple. And we're struggling and resisting against it because they don't make sense to us, right? And yet, as we move through history, like, for instance, Daniel, He said there's going to be Babylon, and this is going to happen. And then there's going to be Medo-Persian, and this is going to happen. And then there's going to be Greece, and these things are going to happen. And have they progressively happened? And then you will know that I am the Lord. Because as he fulfills his word, he's proving that his word is true, it's true, it's true, it's true. Correct? So at this point, at this point, enough things have happened that are true that can you say at this point in history that you're pretty confident that this is going to happen? That's what I would say is one of the points of message here in the book of Ezekiel. That's right. And, and the more they do that, the more they, they absolutely do. They, they sure do. They sure do. I would say that for me, and you tell me if you think this is true for you too, the older I get and the longer I study God's word, the more I realize it's safer to believe literal than it is to try to make an application which is kind of non-touchable that's mystical or that's just spiritual it's better to say when it's giving me this many details 
north, south, east, west. This, you know, the measurements are here. It faces this way. These are the people who do this. When it gives me that much detail, it's literal. Right? Oh, my gosh, yes. That's exactly right. Good for you. Good remembrance. Um, she's bringing up a point from an old study in our Matthew uh, study. I remember we talked about this. How do you tell the difference often between a parable and a truth story like the story of, Laz- of um, in, in Luke of uh, Lazarus and the rich man, right? We know that's not a parable. Why? Because he's named, right? And within the, quote, parable that they want to call a parable... Abraham is mentioned. He's a literal historical of a person. In true parables, it's like a son did this, and they did. They went here, and they went there. It's real. It's it's non-specific. But when literal people, historical names that we know are named, then it's not a parable. It's speaking about a literal person. So in that particular one, Lazarus is named, and Abraham is named, and therefore it's a literal story it's not it's not it's just giving us a a fact and it gave us in that account it gave us an insight about um the place called sheol right almost always they pre they are pre uh stated this is a parable and then he gave a parable and then he gave a parable is this and then Right, and then he gives interpretation often, too. You're absolutely right about that. So that's a good point, too. So here is, I guess we're getting some really good inductive Bible study processes again here this morning of re- recalling what it is that helps us as a, as a unique group of studiers of God's Word that helps to give us boundaries and, and kind of gives us um, rules, a system that we can follow that says mostly... As far as I can tell, these are the truths. We want to we want to hold on to our known doctrines. We want to let the context rule for interpretation. Uh, we need to recall. Re, we need to know this is a literal future future event, and that there is historical re, when there's historical record and this kind of details for it, then you can assure be assured it's a literal interpretation. So if that helps you at all. For those of you who are still in that place of, I don't know for sure how I look at this, I'm giving you the rules. And the rules are consistent no matter what book in the Bible you are in. You can apply it when you're in the book of James. You can apply it when you're in the, in the, in the book of uh, Genesis, which is how we know a day is a day in the book of Genesis. It isn't talking about thousands of years. It's a literal 24-hour day. There is evening and there is morning one day. That's as literal as it gets, right? But the world wants to say, no, God's word is not literal. You know, they want you to fall back into that place where you can be safe. And like, you, like Craig brought up, you get into trouble because you stop believing God's word is true. And in this book of Ezekiel, he is saying to us over and over, I am going to prophesy a future event. I am going to fulfill it. And when I fulfill it, then you will know. That I am the Lord. Yeah, exactly. And who's who is actually speaking? Last week we looked at that when we hit chapter uh, forty-three. Let's see. Hold on. Yeah, in forty-three, the, in in the first few chapters, forty, forty-one, and forty-two, we saw that there was a man. 
leading Ezekiel, and we're assuming an angel, an angelic being, right? But when we hit 43, who begins to speak? Well, we see his response in 43.3. He says, and I fell on my face, and the glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate, and he brought me by the Spirit, right? And then he says to him in verse 7, and he said to me, son of man, this is the place of whose throne? My throne. So who is this speaking to Ezekiel now? God himself. So we are now in 44. God himself is, is, is speaking. He says, and he, he who, the one who spoke to him, who says, this is my throne, right? You have to link it back. So still God's speaking and God is saying all these things that we're going to be looking at here right now, this is the Lord telling him himself, right? So then the question is, is God not telling the truth about a literal place when he gives all these dimensions, the names of the priests who will do this and not do that, the way they will go north and south or, and whatever. And what would be the point to all that, by the way? In conclusion, with some of the things that we've looked at, the overriding theme in this is what? What is it? Why is God giving so many laws? And why, I mean, we can ask why does he reinstitute the sacrifices? That's one question. But the other thing is, why all these rules? A do over. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Okay. And that is absolutely true. In part, it's so that Israel can finally do it right. Right. And to, and and in the process, testify during that thousand years to the truth, the gospel truth. Right. Oh. No, they sure won't. So they're symbol, but that's why I'm saying, because what was the purpose for the law, according to Romans? It was a tutor to lead us to Christ, correct? So it's going to be the same then, apparently. There's something about it that is going to do a, a similar thing for that in that daytime, in that particular time in history. Um, that, that's one of my potential reasons for I don't think there's any one exclusive reason. I think there's maybe a multitude of these things that God is doing with that in time temple. Number one, here's where I stand at this point. I believe there is a literal temple. Okay. Cause there's too many things that I'd have to violate in my understanding of interpreting scriptures to come to any other conclusion. There is a literal temp. There is a literal temple. God will reinstitute his sacrifices. I may not understand it. I don't understand all the reasonings, but I believe it. And therefore I'm going to do what it says here. Mark. Well, and in marking well, I'm going to submit my will to say God knows best. I don't know everything. And, and thirdly, I'm going to say to myself this. This is not the whole story. Ezekiel's message here is not the whole story. We're going to get more of the story later. If, it's not, if there's not little pieces that we'll pick up as we're studying throughout our lives from this point forward, we'll pick up on a point here and a little point there where we're going to come across a verse. We're going to go, oh, look. That's, that's like, that's the temple. That's what he's saying. We're going to do that. That's cool. You can run to the back of your Ezekiel pages and put that little cross reference in there and add to your, you know, your little bucket of, of information that's going to help you have better insight. But ultimately, when will I get full realization of it? When I see Jesus face to face, when I am in that place, 
when I get there, he will give me my assignments and he will tell me what I'm doing and I will have an understanding of why the temple. Because I'll see it for its reality. And I'll see it with the spirit of God in me. Right? With this knowledge that he is going to give, give us at that time. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. That's true. There's there's too much proof just through. I mean, I loved it. Did those of you who went and saw that documentary on um, um, the Exodus, and they showed how. Maybe if by just moving things in a timeline that they've been looking at things in a, incorrectly because all they had to do is move the timeline down and then it fit perfect, right? Which means that archaeology historically has been recorded incorrectly for a lot of years. Now, there's a lot of people who are going to bristle at that because they are just so avid in wanting to believe man is always right. They've always got the story right. Yeah, Right. And yet they're not willing to say, no, God's word is right. Man needs to get on board with God's word. Um, I think it's going to be coming out. Do you know, does anybody know about the movie? If it's going to, I do believe it's going to be coming out. I remember. Yeah, and Google it. You could Google and find out when it's coming out for release. It will eventually come out for release, I'm sure. Um, it seemed to me like Laurie Skipton sent me a message about it, and she said she couldn't wait for it to come out on video, that she's already looking forward to ordering whatever. So I'm pretty sure that it's going to be available. Okay, so now let's go on. So here we're going to talk about marking well. It talks about the, the will, your will, your heart, your mind, and your, your uh, focus of focus on facts, Right? So it's kind of a combination. Marking well it has to do with submitting your will to what you do see. When we talk about this in time, just submit to the fact that God has said it, and that therefore you believe it, right? Number one, that's part of it. The other part is use your mind to reason some of these things through, right? Also, don't violate your known doctrines. Let the context rule for interpretation. So let's go back and set the context a little bit. Let's do a quick review of where we are at this point, um, I have nowhere to write this, so we'll just discuss it. Go back to your segment. I've given you most of it already on your chart. Pull out your chart that I've given you on page two that says segment division. We just want to very briefly look at this just to get our minds in place so as we move forward with this, we've, we know where we're at in the flow of things. We know that basically there have been two segments. Have you guys been keeping up on your Ezekiel at a glance chart? Okay, this is mine. So you can take a look and see what I've got going so far. I have found segment divisions. Do you see how I've color-coded them? And I've marked them off. We're only going to be looking at the last two on this page that I've given to you on your chart. I gave you my last two segment divisions. The first one is the prophesy hope to my people. That's the part that we just came out of before we started uh, where we are now. Right now we're in Ezekiel's vision of a future temple, correct? Everybody knows that's where we are, correct? All right, so this chart helps me see the big picture, the big chunky pieces of what's going on in Ezekiel on the whole. By color coding it, it just helps my eye focus better. I can 
compartmentalize things in my brain. It just helps me to, to see it better. And if anybody needs to see this up close, just let me know. You, I can pass it around. You can look at it. Or actually, we can send it out if we need to also. I think I did send this out at one time. It's not complete, obviously. We still have two more weeks to fill in. Well, one more week, two more chapters. Sorry. Yes. All right. So what do we see? We see the prophesy hope to my people. So what was going on in that segment there on prophesying hope, 33 to 39? What were some of the points that uh, you remember about that segment? What does God tell us? Uh, was the pro- he's, he's giving them hope because what has he done in previous segments before this? What has he already done with Israel? What have we seen? He exiled them, right? He brought judgment. He brought kingdoms against them, and there was judgment. We saw that progression of, of three successive sieges until finally Israel is completely destroyed. Early in chapter 10, way earlier in the book, we saw the glory of God do what? Leave the temple. And then, and then his statement that follows that, and now it's time for judgment at my door. Right now it's time for judgment at the house of God. So he leaves the temple in order for the unbelieving world to come in and crush and, and discipline Israel for its, its violation. What ultimately does God keep saying in this book they are violating? What are they doing? Provaining his holy name. So one of the uh, chapters actually in, in verse chapter 36, he says God will do what concerning his name? He is going to vindicate. So now maybe that is another thing that you need to add to our list of why the temple. Because God is going to do what? He says, I will vindicate my holy name. Okay, and that's in thirty, chapter 36, verse 23. Whoops. There you go. So as a prelude into where we're at at this point, what we see is God saying, I'm going to vindicate my holy name. So something about this temple time, this thousand-year reign, is going to, to be part of that process for God when he will vindicate his holy name. We also know part of that vindication will occur during these seven years that preclude it, right, that, that are before it, because he's going to cut off the wicked, and then he's going to establish the righteous upon the land as he intended for them to be all along. Did he, was his heart's desire that all Israel, back in the days when Moses brought the people in, uh, to the land and then Joshua brought them into the land, was it, was it not his desire that they all be righteous? Yes. That they all live upon the land in righteousness? He had established many laws and rules. And we went back last week and looked at some of those those, was it last week or week before, when we looked at some of the Levitical laws about, you know, what was the purpose to that law, right? Why did they have to do certain things? Well, it was all about the holiness of God, just as Ezekiel seems to be, this overriding theme of, of keeping holy what's holy, showing respect and holiness and reverential fear to, of God. That's what God is working towards with humanity. He wants us to see him for who he is. Yes, he's our heavenly father, and yes, he loves us, but there is also more to that story. He, there, he, is a, he is a God that is to be revered. He sits high and exalted on his throne, right? He is the all-powerful, almighty God who, do, who not only demands respect, but, but deserves respect, right? 
Okay, so part of what we're doing as we're moving into where we're at right now about this end-time kingdom is looking to see what is the motivation here is that God wants to vindicate his holy name. And he's saying that this temple has something to do with that. This temple and what's going to occur during those thousand years is a part of that, right? All right, so, and because the story does not end until we go into the new heaven and the new earth. The thousand years is not the end. How many of you guys grew up thinking that Armageddon and that was it? (laughs) I sure did. I thought that was the end of it all. And there was no turning back and there was no salvation after that. I just thought that, that, that the end of those seven years and that tribulation, that great Armageddon war that takes place right here at the, at that seventh bowl, I thought that was the end. Now I have come to see there is a thousand years after that follows that he continues to offer salvation, to demonstrate his holiness before the world. He has bound Satan. Have you ever considered that? Why bind Satan for a thousand years? Okay. Can salvation come right now, though, although he's not bound? Yes. Yes. Okay. So why bind him? Yeah, I think it removes all excuses. She's basically, I think it's re, it's removing excuse. The Flip Wilson story, the devil made me do it, is no longer an excuse when God's great white throne judgment, which follows the thousand years, comes and people stand before that great white throne. No one can say by testimony of 1,000 years, God can say, it isn't that the devil made you do it. You cannot blame the devil. Although he has a role in it for us in our generation, during this thousand years, he's going to be bound. At the end of that, there's going to be a lot of people who are going to come up against God again, right? And now they are without excuse, just as we are without excuse, right? But, but that one argument will be utterly put aside. And there will be no way anybody can fall back on that and say, the devil made me do it. It is your own free will. This is why here he says, mark well. He says, with your heart, with your will, with your mind, you are to mark well the things that I say and submit to them. The other thing is, is right now Satan does have the authority to kind of mess with us on this earth and do irrelevant. Sure. I could see Cain have two going on. I mean, if you want to let him go for a second, Satan dancing through the world with no. everybody dodging and control and Well, we know that when he releases him, it's for it says for a short period of time. So it's short, whatever that means. Isn't that true? That's very good. Exactly. So Marking well is it encompasses all that makes you a reasoning, thinking person who then will, in a in a willfulness of your own um, submission, you you do submit to God. You say, "Okay, God, I don't get it, but I'm bowing my knee to it because even though I don't understand the whole story yet, I know that you're good. I know that you're right, and I know that your ways are." are good for us. And so I'm just going to say, I don't understand it all yet, but I believe we will understand it eventually. Uh, Raquel. Yes, he does. He does. 
Absolutely. But at the end of the age, he'll be bound and people will still be blinded. Mm, interesting. Yeah. That's right. And it's also in Hebrews. That's exactly right. That's right. That's right. All right. Okay. So we are not going to have time to go through every single point on this, but I want to hit the ones that are most significant. First and foremost, we want a title. What do we have for chapter 44? What, do you, what was your theme when you finished all of your hard work and looking at each of the parts? On the whole, what do you see going on in chapter 44? Well, you know what, that's, that's my title for the entire segment that we looked at. They are statutes for the Lord's, ha- for the house. Um, specifically in the Lord's house, who's named in this chapter? Who are the people that he's targeting here? Pardon? I can't hear you. Okay, the, the sons of Zadok are mentioned, okay. And, and the sons of Zadok are, are what? They're priests. And were there other priests that were mentioned in this chapter also? So on the whole, it's talking about laws for priests, right? And he's distinguishing this group is going to do this and this group is going to do that, correct? And also there's another person that's spoken of in here. Who is that? The prince, thank you. Very good, the prince. So we, we see him speaking about the prince and, we, and t- speaking about the priests uh, concerning. So it is about laws. So let's, laws or statutes, however you want to call it. I wrote laws because it's shorter. <laughs> That's the only reason. Okay, laws for the temple, right? For the temple what? Priests and prince. The prince of Israel, of Israel. I'm going to finish that verse out so that you see it. Okay, and I use just verse 5 as kind of a point of reference for that title. So in uh, verses 1 to 3, we see him talking about the eastern gate again. Did you notice how many times there's directionals are given in this particular one? In verse 1 and 2 and 3, all three of them mention east, 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 or, or it refers to it by it, <laughs> it meaning the eastern gate. All right, so it's talking about this eastern gate, and what do, what do we conclude about the eastern gate? I think this one's real significant to the overall theme of our book. Right, the eastern gate shall be what? Shall be shut. Now, why? That's right, because the Lord has entered by it. Now, in just that one little uh, statement, what is, again, it's showing to us about God's message concerning the laws for his temple in the future? 
What is he, basically, what is he saying there to us? It's got to be shut because the Lord came in by it. So what does that mean about you and me? Can we just arbitrarily come in and out of the same door? No, it shows again, there's a, a, a profound emphasis on respecting that which is reverenced, that which is holy. And what makes it holy? The Lord's presence, right? So we see because the Lord got in by it, Jesus, therefore, in here, what do we see? Who, who's in this place is Jesus, correct? Is speaking of Jesus. And where is he going to be? On his throne in that temple, right? All right. This is really cool because it's a great conclusion to drawing a good interpretation then of the next part. What about who's mentioned next then after that? The Lord is going to be in that temple. That gate's going to be shut. And then he, go, he, says, he, he, um, he says, now I want you to mark well all these things, right? You shall say to the rebellious ones to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, enough of all your abominations. So can you see now there's a contrast there to doing that which is showing reverence to God versus doing abominations, right? So there's a contrasting point that's being made here. Uh, and he talks about their uncircumcised heart, how they have profaned his sanctuary before. And in this one, they are not going to be allowed to profane it, right? Um, all right, where's the part about... Okay, there it is. As for the prince, what is he going to do? What does it say? As for the prince... He, he shall do what? Okay, so, okay, so he shall sit in the door to eat before the Lord. Pardon? Well, it, it later it goes on. It talks about that gate later, and it says about the, but it says he shall sit. I'm just going to put in parentheses in that door, in that gate, basically, in the gate, in it. Right, right. And then later in another chapter, it goes on to elaborate that that gate will be open when that prince wants to come and go, when he goes in on the Sabbath, right? Let's go back over to the Sabbath one. Where is that? Um, okay, here in chapter 46, he says, the prince shall enter by way of the porch of the gate. That's talking about the eastern gate, right? from outside and stand by the post of the gate. Then the princess shall provide his burnt offerings, his peace offerings. He will worship at the threshold of the gate and then go out, but the gate shall not be shut until evening. And the people of the land shall also worship at the doorway of the gate before the Lord. So it's going to be allowed to be open for periods of time, this particular gate will, when he goes into worship and then when he leaves, it gets shut again. Okay. So what we so my point here is this. There's a contrast here. We see Jesus does what? He sits on his throne. And what does this prince do? He sits in the door. Is that the same person? No. So there you've got Jesus, and here you've got this prince who is 
that is David. Well, we know it says in, at the opening of that that the, that that gate is going to be shut because why? The Lord has entered. He has entered into the temple, right? Yes. Well, that's a good question. What do you think? It says in 3725. Okay, so go back to Ezekiel. Yes, okay, so go back to Ezekiel. Now you tell me, when we return now, we have to merge some revelation insights, and I know you weren't here for that, but so I'm sorry, but, you know, we'll have to just kind of drag you along with us a little bit. But in Revelation, when, when Jesus returns on his white horse, who comes with him? We do, the church, right? And, and I would say believers on the whole, correct? And so when we come back and then God brings us and puts us upon the land after he does his warring, right, and he establishes his kingdom, then we are going to be here, right? Are you going to be here? Is it really going to be you? Okay, so do you think it'll be David? Do you think it'll be really David? Yeah, I do too. <laughs> okay, and because, now go back to Ezekiel 37, look at verses 24 and 25, reread it. With that knowledge that we come back with Jesus and the fact that he's giving him a name and that it's distinguished from Jesus who's in the temple, this David sits before him and worships him. Obviously, it's not Jesus worshiping himself, sitting before himself, right? So it's somebody else. And in this case, he says in 37, 24, and 25, what? Wow. Isn't that interesting? So in an interesting way, God has not only prophetically fulfilled his word to David through covenant that upon a throne there shall always be a king, meaning Jesus himself, but now God is also rewarding David by allowing him to come back, apparently, and be prince over the people of Israel in that millennial kingdom. So that he'll be a king. Notice he doesn't call him king. He calls him prince because Jesus is king of kings. So he's one of those subordinate kings. And just as you and I are called to come back with Jesus to rule and reign, in this capacity, God is placing David, I believe literal David, back on his his position of ruling over the people. But he does it through the, the very specific rules that he is laying out for us in these chapters about that end time temple. And he tells him where he must sit, when he can approach, and what door he can come in, and when he goes out, how it has to be shut. He has given very specific rules of obedience. This is not the Prince Jesus. This is David. Now, if it's literal David or something else, I guess that could be debated, but I think it's really David. <laughs> it's kind of interesting if you look at the big picture today, Satan is the ruler of the, of, of the earth, if you will, I guess. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously he's subject to God, but he's still ruler of the world. He is put away. Jesus becomes ruler of the whole world, and then there will be nations within the world. David will be over Israel, and there'll be kings throughout the rest of the world, like there are in the nations. Yes, yes. So I kind of think that whole perspective 
It does. When you merge, you almost have to, for this study, you really do have to have merged. Aren't you all thankful for the rest of you guys? Aren't you thankful we did Revelation? Aren't you thankful we did Daniel? Those two books alone have been essential in really getting the big picture on, on Ezekiel because Ezekiel doesn't, doesn't work. Although the first half of the Ezekiel book is just history. So it could, it could be fine. But when you get into this end time stuff, you really have to merge together pieces from these other studies. So if you haven't done those other studies and you're struggling a little bit, just understand that that's normal. I would be struggling too if I hadn't done them. That's exactly right. And that's my point to all of this. Why, do, why is Ezekiel so vague in so much of the detail about this end time time that we don't get the whys behind what is going on and who exactly is going to be? I mean, the only parts that we really get who on is the Jews. So maybe we're not even there. Maybe you and I don't go into that temple and offer sacrifice. That's another option to consider. Maybe it's only the Jews that do it as a temples, I don't know. We know the nations come, but maybe that's the unbelieving nations that need to get saved. I don't, I don't know. Yes. Yeah, the people of the land. Right, exactly. So we know some of the nations come up. Right. Next week, we're going to do a little bit more work on this. And if you're, if you're brave enough, do some more research on your own. Go into a concordance and look up some additional in, uh, scripture references that you can go to. Pull in as much as you can. Um, I think that once we are done with all of this, book on the whole, once we get the big picture all laid out and we feel like we can start to take a breath, now comes the real work if we wanted to. It's like we're almost just laying down the foundation so that we can go back into Ezekiel now. Now that the big chunky things are in place and we know what the flow of thought is, we know what his overall purpose is for this book, we know uh, in, t- in a timeline where these things are being placed. Now that we've got that much done, that's huge. Now we could really get into some serious inductive study on this book. It would be a lot of fun. Yes. Yes. And now I'm still struggling with Jesus is the fulfillment of all of this, but it's he already said it perpetually. Am I missing it? Yeah. Perpetually these will be forever. That these are priesthoods forever. These are, are my servants forever. Exactly. That's true. That's true. Okay, so I just wanted to point this one thing out about this one chapter, that there is a, an answer to this, that it is Jesus on his throne, and whoever this prince is, it is not Jesus. It's not referring to him in this place. However, have there been times in the scripture where Jesus was referred to the prince? Yes. yes. So don't say that that means it never means Jesus. Sometimes it does. Context rules for interpretation. This context makes it very clear to us. That this is not speaking of Jesus. This prince, when he's speaking of the prince in this uh, book, it is in, at least here in these last chapters anyway, I'm going to stick with that much, that, that this is speaking of, 
David, King David, who will come back to rule and reign in his position as the prince over Israel in that last day. I think that's exciting. It means we'll get to meet David. Awesome. All right. All right. So now one more point I want to say in order to another, like one more time hammer in the truth of the bigger message here, which has to do with this, uh, the separation of the holy from the profane. What does God say in verses four to eight to these people? There's a rebuke in here. What is it? Yeah. He says enough of your abominations. That's it, exactly. And so that's in, in verses 4 to 8 there. These first one was 1 to 3. Okay, so that's all we're going to do in 44. Uh, it goes on. It talks about who the, the Levites are going to minister to the people. The sons of Zadok shall minister to me, right? He makes that distinction in those two uh, paragraphs. And in the last paragraph, he talks about uh, no land inheritance for the priests. Because Why? He is their inheritance, right? And he, and he talks about he, they will be fed by the, the sacrifices and the offerings which come to the temple. So they're literally being fed by the Lord and their inheritance is the Lord. I think that's awesome. Okay, so 45. What do we see in 45? What was going on in that uh, chapter on the whole? Okay, so it's again about laws. And the laws that pertain to allotments of land, right? And um, also, what else is in there? There's another law that I think is really kind of interesting. And again, it just brings up the fact that previously they've been unholy in doing it, and now he wants them to be holy. Yes, the balances. Did you see that in 10 and 11? There's a law that's given to them for standardizing their balances, right? For their measurements of how much for this and then how much is this. And what do you think that was about? What do you think has been happening previously that you can recall? Yeah, cheating, weighing it too heavy so that they would get more than they were supposed to receive, right? I thought that was very interesting. So in, the, in this allotment of the land, there was also um, just balances were established. And I think it's neat. They're established by the Lord. The Lord is what says is a fair balance, right? And um, then at the very end, we see a couple more things come up, right? In verses 18 to 25. 18 to 20 mentions what? Or 18 to 20, rather. Yeah, cleansing the, the sanctuary. And, it, and when does it occur? The first month. Then you, and then it goes to the, oh, I'm sorry, that, that actually is 18 to 24, right? Talks about that. That first month mentions Passover by name, which is very interesting because we know what Passover is all about. And who is our Passover? Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God, right, who takes away the sin of the world. Okay, and then in verse 25, there's another annual thing that comes up, right? What is it? Something on the 
seventh month, but it doesn't tell us what it is. Is that not a clue to you that there's more to be told somewhere? Somewhere along the line, God is going to have to fill in what that seventh month thing is, and he doesn't do it here, does he? So he leaves it open-ended, but he simply tells us there are some things that go on at the first of the month and at the seventh of the month on an annual basis, correct? Every year they do these things, correct? He talks about uh, on the first of the month, in the first month, on the first of the month, you shall take a young bull without blemish and cleanse the sanctuary. How often do you think they do that? How often does the first of the month come around of the first of the year? Once every year. So it's annual, isn't it? And then in the seventh uh, month, again, in verse 25, annual, correct? So these are annual um, statutes. I love that. I did see that, that the cleansing is for the house itself to make the house cleansed. And what might be the point to that? Yes. Okay, again, it brings up holiness. It's, it's a demonstration on a yearly basis about the holiness of the sanctuary. And you are to remember it, remember it. For a thousand years, every year, you get to be reminded, my sanctuary is holy and that it is to not be profaned. Isn't that cool? That's a pretty good, strong message in this over and over and over about the holiness. Mm-hmm. Yes, cleansing by the blood. Yep. All right, because there's going to be the blood and the sacrifice of animals, okay? So it's all about um, holiness and cleansing, right? Um, in here, it also talks, besides, the, as far as the land allotments, they were lands pre, uh, prescribed for three things. What were they? City. The city and the prince himself and one more. The first one mentioned, the sanctuary itself, land for the sanctuary, place for the sanctuary. So it's a a land allotment for the sanctuary, a land allotment for the city that's going to be around it on the south side of the temple, and the land for the princes to possess for their houses, right? Um, What was the rebuke that was given in here in verse 7 to 9? He says, no more expropriations. I had to look that word up. Expropriate, to expropriate, to take something away, right? I looked it up. It says expulsion, violence, dispossession, act of expulsion, or the act of removal of property or violent eviction from property property strongly implied to be an unfair act of oppression what would you say about what you know about the history of the kings previously of israel were there times when they came in and just literally just said that's my land i'm taking it yes 
Yes. So here we see a, a word of rebuke and a prohibition against that in the future. And then he goes on to give even further details about uh, later about um, inheritance laws for those lands as well. But here he's simply saying you cannot just come in and take away land. This land is being allotted and given to specific people, and that's where it shall remain. Correct? Which is really cool because God is again saying no more uh, profaning, right? Okay, so no profaning of his laws, basically. And then he, in 10 to 12, he says the, there are laws for just balances. Um, in 13 to 17, he talks about measurement laws for offerings. In other words, a predetermined tithe or a percentage, right, that was based off of their total wealth that they, could, that they were uh, asked to give. Okay, so now let's go to the last one, theme in 46. Okay, laws for worship of different kinds, and they were named by name. One was the Sabbath. What else? Did you happen to circle these? I just went through my observation worksheet and circled the, the things that were being discussed. In verse 1, it's the Sabbath day and the new moon, right? Verse 9, it's what? Appointed feasts. In um, verse 13 and down, it talks about what? Something that occurs how often? Daily. So there were some daily things that were being done. So in here, it's laws for temple offerings, right? Again? And then also talks about the land in what regard? What is the emphasis this time? Not the allotment of them, but what? Go to 16 to 18. What's the key repeated word in 16 to 18? Inheritance. So it's talking about the inheritance and how, who they can pass it on and how it's going to come back to them. Uh, what, what's uh, law from the Old Testament comes back up again in the millennial time? The year of Jubilee. Isn't that interesting? So if a prince, for instance, if one of the rulers determines that he's going to give a plot of land away to someone other than his family member, what happens at the year of Jubilee? It returns back, it returns back to him. Because why? What has God said? I designate to whom that family will be that receives that land, right? I have determined that it goes to this family group here, this family group here, this family group here. We're going to look more at that next week, but in great detail. Okay, so we'll get a chance to look at that. So, and land inheritances. Yeah. Yes, it is. Land inheritance laws. Would you say that the land inheritance laws that he's demonstrating to us here probably also apply to anyone? That if I say I'm I'm of the the land of, or maybe I'm of the tribe of, um, um, give me another, Asher or something. I'm going to, 
Okay, I'm in Benjamin. I like Judah better, but okay, I'll go for Benjamin. So I'm in, <laughs> so I'm in the I'm in the tribe of Benjamin. Do you think that potentially this law is going to apply to everyone across the board? As far as if they want to give a piece of land away to somebody for whatever reason, if I favor someone and I want to give a land, what do you think is going to happen in the year of jubilee? It returns. When you go back to the Old Testament and look at the uh, Jubilee law that they had back then, did it not apply to everyone? Yes. yes. So uh, even though, yes, it talks about the prince specifically, and I think that's just, he's just giving an example in there, but I really do think it's going to apply to everyone. He's probably the one that's been violated. Probably the most, right? <laughs> he's taking things away from this poor little tribe who doesn't have a lot of power and gives it to someone else. And because he's the king, he gets to do what he wants, he thinks, right? It does say that if he gives it to his servants, in other words, or if he gives it to his to sons, his sons. and why is that? Because it's still the inheritance of the same family name line, and that's my point. He does this land inheritance law to retain the integrity of what God distinguished for certain people groups. And when we get into the next two chapters, we're going to see that a lot more clearly, I think. Yep. Yes. 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 Okay, then we go to the very end of this. It's talking about these designated kitchens, which I thought was interesting again. But what do you see about the designated kitchens? What, what kind of brings, what thought line comes up to you since these are designated? And, and how are they separated? Is there a separation between the common people and the priests? Why would that be? What are we separating again? Yep. Separate the holy from common. Okay, so again, and I'm going back to 4220 on that reference, right? But it's talking about those two separate uh, kitchens, and it's interesting to me how he brings that in right at the close of that um, particular chapter. Okay, I want to go back to one point that I, I had a question thrown out to me this week through, by email about the holy linens. Did anybody else have a, a question about this? Um, 44, 19 and 20, I think it is. In 20, 19, the end of 19, okay? He says, and when they go into the outer court, now it's talking about the Levitical priests. What have the Levitical priests put on in this segment here? Headdresses and clothing, right? All these garments, and they're, and they're described in details, and would you say the garments are special? Okay, and in that regard, he says, and when, when they have been ministering, they're supposed to then, when they're done, lay them where? In holy chambers. Then they shall put on what, what kind of garments? Other, the common, right? The everyday clothing. So that they will not do what? Now, what is that talking about? Transmitting the holiness, holiness to the people with their garments. A little bit, 
Yes, it kind of makes me think of that. It's really easy for us to totally misinterpret what's being said here because of our the way we think of things. He's not saying transmit like a virus, right? It's not a virus. Obviously, holiness is not a virus that if I stand next, I'm holy. No, you're holy. I'm gonna get a, I'm gonna get a holy hug. Now I'm all holy because I I got really close. It's not talking about that kind of transmitting, right? So when it's talking about the holiness being transmitted to who? To the common people. What is it talking about? Can can you think this through just a little bit with me? It kind of seems, it's kind of gives, it's kind of an obvious place to go. And I did, I, I did see that in some of the things I looked at. Uh-huh. Why? You tell me this. Okay, just think about you and your everyday, well, let, let me, let me revert this question a little bit. Remember when we were little and we would go to church and you had what kind of clothing? Your Sunday clothes. And why were your Sunday clothes taken off when you got home? So you wouldn't dirty them so that they wouldn't become, you know, soiled and not special anymore, right? So they had special clothing. And in dressing in that special way, which is something that we're kind of battling in our generation right now about the idea of coming into the house of God. When we come into the house of God, how are we to dress? With respect and honor to who? To God. So if we have special clothing as these priests do. Now, we've got to really go into the next level of this. This is for you and I in the common. We're just talking about a Sunday dress, right? But these are the holy priests who minister where? Before the Lord, right? So when they go before the Lord, they put on something very significantly special, right? Because what are they doing when they go before the Lord? What is the garments conveying before God when they go in dressed in this way? Purity, holiness, and reverence and humility, right? Plain cotton, uh, breathing, it's all made of the natural things that God has created, right? So it, it's all about also humility. So when you go before the Lord with these clothing on, you're not going in all dressed up and saying, I'm so cool. I look so nice, Lord, look at me, right? Instead, I'm going in very plainly dressed because the focus is where? On the Lord. So can you kind of take all that and weave that together in this thought now and say, well, what is it talking about transmitting the holiness? What is it saying there? Who am I not to to show that same reverential respect to? The common people. Who is that reserved for? The Lord. Yes. Thank you, Carol. Gold star. You get the gold star today. That's exactly right. It just follows in the theme of everything that we've been studying here about separating the holy from the profane. And he's saying, when you come before me, you come before me dressed in a way which gives me all the glory and all the focus is upon me. And when you go before the people, you don't go before them in the same way. 
that reverence is reserved for me. And I've designated a certain kind of, of attire, a certain kind of garment that you're to wear before me. And you're to, when you put that on, there's supposed to be an, a whole mindset change. Uh, have you ever heard of actors doing that? You know, when they get into, into costume and by putting the makeup on and the clothing on, their, their mind is there, yes. right? This is kind of what, the, what the, the reverential dress of the great high priest was. Remember, in the Old Testament, when the high priest would go and he would stand, there would be special bathing processes. They put all these clothings on. He wasn't allowed to touch anything once he was dressed in a certain way so that he not be contaminated, right? Do you remember when Jesus was resurrected and he said to Mary, what? Don't yet touch me for what? I have not yet ascended to the Father. No contamination. I am going before the Father with purity as that slain uh, sacrifice, which, was, which is um, reverential, which is holy, which is not common. It's not the profane. It's the holy. And so here we have that picture. Don't. That's right. Amen. 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 That's exactly what I think it's saying. And, and I got this brilliant idea because I'm so smart. No, because Kay told me in her notes. I would thank you, Kay. Oh, I mean, I was really struggling with that one going, I, well, I knew it couldn't be like a virus because that's where my brain went. Oh, it's like, you know, it's not like holiness is a virus. You can't transmit it, right? And you can't, and then just like your bloodline can't give somebody salvation, you can't pass it on. So I knew that's not what it meant. It had to mean something else. So when she brought this up, that this is talking about showing God a special kind of reverential respect through the way that we dress because he designated how to do it. And so we, we do mark well with our mind and with our submission and with our thinking and with our reverential respect for him, our love for him, we do it his way. So when you go before him, you dress in a certain way. And you are not to take those same things which are reserved for holiness and, and for the sanctity of worshiping me and go out into the common people with them. It's to be reserved for me. No, <laughs> not at all. I actually think we're going to bump it up a notch. I think in our generation right now and where we are in history, we have really gone down a notch. I think we have lost our reverential fear of God. I think we have embraced him as a daddy instead of a heavenly father who sits upon a throne. He has no longer got that reverential place in our mind so that we have the fear of the Lord. And if you will go back into the Psalms and look how often the fear of the Lord is mentioned. That there is to be a reverence for him. And, and I can tell you this, even if for no other reason this temple exists in that time, if it's to teach reverential fear of God, an understanding of a separation between what's holy and what's profane, so that when we, because when we enter into the new heaven and the new earth, it says there is no temple. 
God the Father and Jesus Christ walk among us, right? So if we've learned here during this thousand year how to have real reverential fear of the Lord, reverencing him, we won't need this system anymore to do it. We will have trained ourselves through that thousand years to know how to appropriately walk with the Lord. Yes, he will. Well, he'll handle the, the ones who won't. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's exactly right. Uh, yeah. Yes, absolutely. It's exciting, though. This I am just getting really excited about the millennial reign as we study this. You know, we always think that our work is almost done. I'm getting tired as I get older. I'm ready to just take a nap. But guess what? There's a thousand years of work ahead of us. What we are doing right here in this classroom is is preparing ourselves for that training time when God is going to prepare us for that eternal kingdom. I'm excited. Yes, Kath, Kathleen. Yes, yes, that you're cast out if you're not wearing the correct wet wedding garment. That's ex- that's a good one. Yes. Yeah. So it really, you know, the idea of not transmitting the holiness of those garments has nothing to do with touching them. It has everything to do with who they're worn for, right? Your reverential attitude and the purpose for those was to humble you, prepare you to be before the Lord, and to not give that same kind of respect and reverence to any man, only to God. Yes, Diane. One huge lesson of this to me, and I don't know that you all are going to feel the same way, is I love to go through the word and figure stuff out mm-hmm. as it goes. Yeah. But there has to be a point when it doesn't compute and we simply step back and have that's exactly right. And I do think that that's exactly why he starts it with Mark well. These are things that we are to pay attention to, and we're all just pulling our hair out, looking at all these measurements in north and south and east and all, and we get kind of, like, frustrated with all that. But the whole point is, in the end, are we learning the, the, the higher overriding picture of this? Is that, number one, that when it happens, then you will know that he is the Lord. So you're, you're coming to believe that whatever he has said is exactly what he will do and, and exactly the way that he says it. There's, there's no uh, pretend about it. It's all factual. And secondly, that we are learning that the, that the holiness of God is something that we need to learn. Understanding reverential respect and approach. How do we approach a, rev, a reverent God is not the same mindset that, that the, this current generation has about worship of God. We have this totally wrong perspective, I think, that we need to get corrected. Yeah. Yes. 